Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two interviews today, and they're pretty long, so not much time for me to jabber. We'll hear from Megan Day and Michael Utrecht, authors of Bigger Than Bernie, who will talk about the legacy of the Sanders campaigns. And then Jane McAlevey will explain why the union was defeated in its attempt to organize the workers at an Amazon distribution center in Bessemer, Alabama. Verso has just published the paperback edition of Megan Day and Michael Utrecht's book, Bigger Than Bernie. It's an examination not just of the two Sanders campaigns, but the larger movement they inspired. The hardcover was published in March 2020, just as the Sanders campaign was folding up its tent and the world was entering pandemic lockdown. Now, just over a year later, the paperback is being issued with a new 40-page preface that analyzes the politics of one of the most difficult years in modern history. Here they are to talk about it all. Michael Utrecht is the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine, and Megan Day is a staff writer there. The end of the Sanders campaign left a lot of people on the left really demoralized, um, disappointed. We thought it would uh, amount to more than it turned out to amount to, at least in electoral terms. It, it amounted to a lot in, in more broadly political terms, but you know, we were hoping for a better result than what happened. And it's left a lot of us sniping at each other and going back to old ways of fighting over identity politics and all that stuff that we were doing before the Sanders years. How have you been coping with this sense of disappointment? It's a, a matter of politics, but also affect. How have the two of you been dealing with it? Yes, we've all been just crushed by not just the fact that Bernie lost, but the way in which he lost was such a bizarre turn of events. I mean, all of our political hopes were raised higher than they have ever been raised before in our lifetimes. And then even those of us who thought that the most likely outcome was that Bernie would lose the race, the fact that it just stops and all of a sudden we're on a completely different universe, you know, where like COVID hits and we have to figure out how to like social distance, sanitize our hands and wear masks and everything. It was just such a bizarre and violent and jarring way to end this campaign. I think both of us would say that we haven't even fully processed it yet. I mean, on the year anniversary of Bernie winning the California primary, I was on a call with some comrades from California and they were showing videos of rallies and old Bernie ads. And I was moved to tears because I, and I had forgotten that like, oh yeah, that's what it felt like to be in the middle uh, of this campaign. And it's certainly true that without that, without that common project that we're all working on, forcing us to be disciplined about how we interact with each other and, you know, giving us our eyes were on the prize and not on each other to you know, air our various grievances with each other. With that gone, the vibe is wrong. I'm somebody who's been around the left a little bit longer than since Bernie's first campaign. And I really want to emphasize to people over and over and over again that what we have now, it's not ideal. It's, it's not as good as the situation that would have happened if Bernie had won the presidency. But we do have a very unique and fragile political opening here. And we have to treat each other and treat other people on the left as, as the partners in that very fragile project. And we can't let the fact that the Bernie campaign is over and that, that common project uh, is now gone lead us into sort of destroying this very fragile thing that has uh, been a product of those two Bernie campaigns. I mean, if we are going to change the world in the way that we all hope and believe is possible, we have to focus on seizing the opportunities we've been given rather than sort of slide back into these old ways of sniping at each other on the left. Those of us who were like deeply invested in Bernie Sanders' campaign, very few of us like thought that he was a shoe in. Um, I think that it was only worth throwing our weight behind because it was possible that he could win. But it was certainly not guaranteed that he would win. And in fact, I think we thought that it would be more likely that he wouldn't win the nomination, at least. I think those of us who thought that he would win the nomination thought that there was a high likelihood that he would uh, win the general. 
we anticipated that there would be a little bit of left demoralization in the event of a Sanders loss, but it was very different because of coronavirus. And I'm actually thinking about the 2016 primary. And do you guys remember after 2016, how it became customary all throughout 2016, 2017, and even 2018, people were like begging to stop as they put it, relitigating the 2016 primary, because it was the only thing that anybody could ever talk about. It seemed like it was a story that captured everything about politics left of center or left of center right as it were we couldn't stop fussing over it and sort of like retreading the same arguments and redrawing the same battle lines and this was the exact opposite like i was sort of expecting that to happen this time as well and instead it was almost like when coronavirus hit we stopped litigating the 2020 primary as it was happening. Like it did sort of feel like Bernie's campaign went out with a bit of a whimper or a whisper in the sort of roar of coronavirus. And that was quite unexpected and and pretty disturbing. And I think, you know, then thereafter, it was like the news was happening at breakneck pace. It was only a few months before we had the largest uprising in American history. Um, And then we were on to the general and we were still in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. And now there's an attendant economic crisis. Um, So it has been hard to process, though I feel like we're getting better. We're going slow, but we're getting a handle on it, I would say, Micah. I also want to say something to to Micah's point, too, about like our expectations being raised to really high heights and then sort of dashed. I think that that's true, but only in the sense that the second Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, more so than the first, the first was just like a shock from out of nowhere. And people were jolted into an awareness that maybe better things were possible. The second actually felt to me like it served the function of a kind of ad hoc independent political party. Like it was actually a, a temporary space that allowed people to get on the same page that allowed people to meet each other and develop relationships and develop skills and develop a shared platform and a shared agenda and go toe to toe with other political formations to activate supporters and give them opportunities to build leadership and to unite people across the sort of disparate left in a shared project, which if you think about it, that's all the stuff that we think that we need a a party for, right? That's the purpose of a mass political party. So it's like we had that. And then very quickly, it was the rug was pulled out from under us and the illusion was shattered because we didn't actually have it. We had um, a substitute for it. And then it was like a rude awakening when we realized that, no, we don't actually have a formation like that that could help guide us through through all of those um, very dramatic highs and lows of politics over the next year. Yeah, that was a nice formulation, uh, thinking of it as a temporary political party. But it's also a reminder that we need those things. We need some kind of organization that can last beyond that moment. There are a lot of people on the left who are much more skeptical about that kind of organization, but it seems to me really to underscore the, the need for one. We have the Democratic Socialists of America, no small thing. It's not a a, a full-on party or even whatever you would call a pre-party formation, whatever the criteria for that are. But we have these new vehicles. During the Bernie campaign, Chicago DSA was holding meetings with organizations like the Sunrise Movement, the local chapter, independent ward-level political organizations, various kinds of independent, progressive, left-minded groups, that some of which were in the sort of like labor left, some of which were groups like Sunrise. And they were meeting together around their shared analysis of, of the transformational potential of a Bernie Sanders campaign. We saw through that kind of coming together in, in places like Chicago that, that the elements were starting to cohere. And certainly, at the, at the very least, those kind of organizations were working with uh, a explicitly socialist group, the DSA. That's very promising. It's no small thing in Chicago that we have the United Working Families, which is the political arm of the kind of labor left in the city, Chicago Teachers Union, et cetera, working alongside DSA candidates for city council, endorsing people and throwing their weight and throwing money behind those kind of candidates. Same is true in, in New York right now. There's like actual labor backing of people who are running explicitly as socialists. So these things have come out of the two Bernie campaigns, and they are extremely promising for not just the long term, but I mean the short term of, uh, of American politics. This is an incredibly optimistic moment to me, despite the fact that we're all still kind of uh, trying to process our disappointments from the Bernie campaign. We have very exciting uh, things happening on the left. It's nowhere near where it needs to be yet, but like this is very exciting stuff. And it's nowhere near 
level of a, a national campaign of the size of a presidential campaign. But like that was also a miraculous fluke. It's not something that we should expect to just come around all the time. Um, I also want to echo something that Micah said earlier. I, I agree with you that I'm disappointed with the like general vibe on the left. In fact, we talk about this on the phone a lot, Mike. I think we we share this sort of like concern, but at at the same time, I I do think that things have gotten better. So I think that some of the left's worst habits are probably endemic to the left. So to some extent, so they can really only be suppressed rather than like eliminated. And by these, I mean like a sort of like investment in individual morality. I mean, when you have a lot of people with very strong moral visions coming together, you're going to get a degree of that. And particularly, I guess, on the left, the sort of emphasis on ethical consumption that has really marked left politics since the 90s onward. And then also like the fetishization of obscurity and marginality um, and the kind of abandonment of any pretense to mass politics is a very sort of bad habit on the left. But I think that we're starting to break that. That's sort of on the ultra side, but then on the on the sort of on the rightward side, there's also this kind of like hopelessness about transformative change that masquerades as a type of like very adult seeming pragmatism that that seems to also be dissipating. So even though the vibe right now is way worse than it was during the Bernie campaign, I'm pretty sure the vibe now is better than it was before the first Bernie campaign. Now, I always thought that the presidency was a pretty steep hill to climb. It really is the bourgeoisie's office. But DSA and, and associated forces have been doing very, very well at the local level, state and local level. So I think mean, we really celebrate that fact that there's this movement at the lower level that is not necessarily the bourgeoisie's office uh, that uh, is really unprecedented and very encouraging. We have a case studies chapter in the book about what has been done in places like Chicago and New York, uh, We ha and as well as a case study on in the East Bay where Megan used to live that was about what a campaign that, even when it loses, what it can produce in terms of building capacity of a group like DSA, build up uh, working class, self-activity, uh, et cetera. But like what has happened in New York, the election of so many socialists to the statewide level, as well as two people in the House, and now half a dozen DSA candidates running for city council. I mean, this is pretty transformational stuff. And like in Chicago, we have five people who are in the uh, newly born socialist caucus that are really leading the way on pushing for a, a left politics in, in the city, again, in, in conjunction with the city's labor movement. None of this is chump change. Nobody's got a majority in any kind of legislative body anywhere, but there's real wins on the table that have come out of uh, these changes in a very short amount of time. Yeah, it's important to remember that because, you know, a lot of people who judge what's going on in politics by what's happening on Twitter <laughs> are missing all that stuff. Because you can see a lot of contentiousness uh, in a, on a medium that is almost uh, built to encourage contentiousness. But really, there's an awful lot of constructive stuff going on. I mean, the idea of there being a socialist caucus in the New York State legislature, for someone who's lived in New York State for over 40 years, it's just stunning. It's been such a low, mean, stupid, corrupt reactionary body. And to see this happening, it's just miraculous. Now, Megan, you mentioned uh, briefly the um, anti-cop protests of last summer. You quote in your preface a meme, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like, those protested left Bernie behind, right? There are people who criticize DSA and the Bernie campaign for um, not having been deeply involved enough, either in the protest or the issues that gave rise to them. How do you think that socialists should relate to those protests? Uh, what should we think about them? What do they mean? Uh, what's their lasting political significance? That's a very large question. I'll try to figure out a, a way, a place to start. Um, for one thing, I think that actually it was locality by locality in terms of how involved DSA was with the protests. And I know that like Mike is in Chicago, which I think of as a kind of exemplary chapter, DSA chapter that was deeply involved in the sort of organizational side of those protests over the summer. And I think the same was true in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then there were other places where it was very difficult to connect. And this, this has to do both with the differences between DSA chapters, which are in many ways their own sort of microcosms, right? Each chapter um, really has its own culture and um, has its own sort of structure and its own politics. And then it's also true that the Black Lives Matter movement, the sort of organizational side of it was a different place by place, right? So it's really hard to generalize. As for how we relate going forward, I feel that the slogan defund the police 
had last summer a lot of potential to stand for a continuation of Bernie Sanders style politics of reversing the tide of austerity and investing in social programs in order to stabilize society, coupled, of course, with the very particular concerns about not just policing, but specifically racist policing and mass incarceration. I worry about the present standing of this slogan a little bit because it seems like defund the police as a slogan has come to be conflated with abolish the police in the minds of the majority. And it turns out now that I think because of that, and that's because of an offensive from the right and not just like the Republicans, but also conservatives in the Democratic Party, because of that conflation of the defund demand with the sort of like maximum program of getting rid of the police, its popularity seems to have tanked a little bit. And so now it's idling at around 18%, whereas last summer, its favorability was over 50%. So that's like a 40% drop in favorability for the slogan. I think that's a problem because I do think that the number one demand coming out of the largest protest movement in American history should be more popular than that. We should be really thinking about how precisely we go about building popular mass buy-in for the idea that we should cut police budgets, that we should invest in non-police public safety alternatives, that we should invest in general stabilizing social programs, and that we should tax the rich in order to fund those programs, because we know that even if we cut bloated police budgets, it's not going to cover it. It's not going to be enough. I think there's a lot of potential there. I actually think those sort of like four criteria that I just spelled out are actually pretty popular. When you talk to people who sort of organize around this stuff, they say that when you explain that vision to them, it's quite popular. I'm not sure if the slogan is working for us or if we don't want to abandon the slogan, there might be some work that we need to do to sort of alter the way that it's understood in a popular sense. That's the voice of Megan Day. I'm speaking with her and Michael Utrecht, co-authors of Bigger Than Bernie, just out in paperback from Verso. The fact that we had the largest uprising in American history. And I don't want to say that it's disappeared, but it it should feel more like tangible and palpable in our politics right now than it does. And part of the reason that it doesn't at this point, not, and that's not to say, of course, that people aren't still doing all kinds of organizing, all kinds of places around defund and, and, and ending racist policing and all the rest of it. But there are periodically in American history, these kinds of upsurges that happen in in response to the awful character of various parts of American life. And then they their energy just dissipates and it doesn't find organizational expression uh, in a way that can produce lasting change. And I say this as somebody who was on the streets for I don't know how many of those protests. I live right around the corner from the mayor in Chicago. And so I would hear of protests outside of my window and join them constantly. But precisely because I want those kinds of protest movements to succeed, they need to find an organizational expression. Obviously, I am a partisan for them finding expression through a group like DSA, but not not exclusively DSA. We just like don't have the organizational movement infrastructure to capture that kind of energy and turn it into really lasting policy changes and like a, a, a real shift in American politics. And that's a real problem uh, for all of us who want to see a world where uh, cops are not, you know, brazenly murdering black people and working class people in the streets. Okay, let's turn to um, Sleepy Joe Biden. Will you, <laughs> your uh, preface is dated December 2020, before the inauguration. Uh, I have to say Biden on domestic policy, not foreign policy, uh, but on domestic policy, he is, to use the language of Wall Street, coming in above expectation. The two giant spending bills he's proposed, one successful, passed, but the other not, have been very, very impressive. I mean, you can criticize them for any number of ways that they fall short of what we would like to see, but certainly not what one would expect from Joe Biden and certainly not standard issue American politics. So how do you attribute this somewhat better Biden than any of us expected? We look at Joe Biden's entire political history. He's given us a very clear political record of embrace of neoliberalism, embrace of punitive policing, of pro-corporate governance, etc. We all know his almost Republican-like governing record. Of course, we should be extremely skeptical of him in office. We should do what we did in the preface, which is say that we didn't have very high hopes for uh, his governing. I'm happy to be proven wrong uh, by some of the things that he is doing, but I think it's impossible for anybody to credibly argue that the reason he is governing this way 
is not because of the kind of energy that we have built up on the left combined with the miserable living conditions of average Americans. I mean, like those two things combined are why Joe Biden has been born again in the twilight years of his political career and life, uh, because the Bernie campaign and the kind of energy that is coming out of people like AOC and organizations like the DSA. We've created a situation in which he has come to be like, oh, well, I guess I could be seen as a kind of FDR-like figure. That sounds pretty good to me. And so that's what he's trying to do. Um, so I think that is uh, entirely a product of the pressure that uh, the, this newly reborn left has been putting on him for the last several years and the, and the sea change we've helped affect in society. A change which I think is not quite commensurate to our actual organized abilities on the ground. We're punching above our weight in terms of like the discourse. The effect that we are having in terms of uh, what is on the table politically right now for people like Joe Biden doesn't quite match up to the number of seats that we hold in any legislative body. But this is this shows what a kind of well-organized and politically committed and militant uh, minority in our politics can produce. They can drag even sleepy Joe Biden to the left a little bit, with all the caveats that that should include. He's no FDR uh, at this point, even if he is delivering some important uh, things. And the foreign policy front is a whole other issue. There's such a vacuum in the center of the Democratic Party, organizational, intellectual, political. That, that's part of the reason why he is this way. There's nothing he can draw on from his normal comfort zone that can um, rival the energy that people on the left are showing. I agree with Micah. I want to broaden it out a little bit. So the first thing I want to say is there's are some people are saying that the era of neoliberalism is coming to an end. Um, I, I'm willing I'm perfectly willing to concede. And I actually think it's really important to observe that there is an increased willingness to engage in social spending in the United States in general. And that's not just the Biden administration, by the way. When you look at the CARES Act, for example, obviously the pandemic response from a social spending perspective is really different from the federal government's response after the 2008 financial crisis. So some Something is happening on a federal level when it comes to social spending. However, I would also point out that neoliberalism is not identical to austerity. Um, austerity is maybe one of, we could say, like three planks of neoliberalism, the other two being privatization, which we don't see the Biden administration moving to challenge, and um, opposition to organized labor, which we will see if the Biden administration really throws its weight behind the PRO Act or if it just sort of like floats it out there as a photo op and doesn't really try to muscle it through. We'll see. So we'd really have to see all three of those planks kind of collapse in order to say neoliberalism is over, right? Instead, we're seeing some movement on social spending. And I think that that's really important. And the question is, why is that happening? There are probably three different reasons or like areas of reasons. One is political, as Micah said, the sort of insurgent left has struck the fear of God and centrist Democrats because popular opinion is changing. And so they want to keep their seats. They don't want to be seen as dinosaurs and swept away. Beyond the political is also intellectual. Like, I think that there really is a crisis of neoliberalism from an intellectual perspective. Its main proponents have really started to question it because it has not yielded the fruit they've promised for so long. And it's just becoming harder and harder to pretend that those arguments just wait and see. You just wait and see. I think it's important to note that Biden himself, he's not a deep intellectual thinker. He's got advisors around him or who are telling him what to do. And those advisors are people who are embedded in some cases in their own sort of intellectual fields or their think tank people or they exist in some sort of professional world that is subject to trends. Maybe um, some of the precepts of neoliberalism, which again is not to say all of them, are being called into question and you're seeing that manifest in some Biden policy. The third one I want to say is actually material. One, it's possible that the capitalist class is writing so so high right now that while they wouldn't want to give an inch on organized labor and they wouldn't want to give an inch on privatization, they wouldn't mind throwing a few bones to the masses in the form of social spending. Maybe that's the easiest concession to make for them and it doesn't really take too much skin off their nose. Another is that, um, and I'm sure all of these are true to some extent, even though they're not identical to each other, is that there are certain sectors of capital that actually really need the stimulus right now in order to actually bolster their businesses. So they're probably agitating for, for a stimulus to put money in people people's pockets to spur consumption. And then there's a, a third one, which is that let's say there is an appetite on, on the part of the Biden administration for social spending, like a genuine sort of internal appetite. If that is the case, and I think that that's kind of questionable, it's also true that the balance of 
forces between the state and capital is kind of tilted in the state's favor right now, at least as regards to some industries, because the crisis has meant that some sectors of capital are dependent on the state to like save their asses right now. They're very different. I'm sure that they are, they probably describe the reality for like different sectors of capital and come together to create a patchwork material reality. Um, I'm not sure which one is the most important in determining how we got to the present juncture, but I think they're worth all um, imagining as possible reasons why we're here. And not that, like, we are ending neoliberalism, right? Neoliberalism is pronounced dead, uh, you know, more times than Marx, I think. Uh, and finally, um, you said the title of your book, and this is a very important part of your argument, was that the movement was bigger than Bernie. Do you think it's proved to be, and do you feel vindicated in that uh, assertion? Absolutely. We've already discussed the various aspects of DSA that have exploded. Uh, we are all very sad that Bernie Sanders is not the president of the United States right now. But that was always a, a total shot in the dark, moonshot uh, type of possibility. What has happened is that Bernie kickstarted a movement that is indeed bigger than Bernie that has like given us a little shove to get going. And now we are sort of building from scratch, building a grassroots organization of people who are largely volunteers in the Democratic Socialists of America who are figuring out how to do stuff like get people elected to state senates and uh, you know state houses and city councils and even uh, play key roles in getting people elected to the House of Representatives in Congress. So we're sort of like in the early phases of building that movement that is bigger than Bernie, but it's certainly happening. And anybody who thinks it's not happening is just not paying attention to the realities of what is happening on the left in America right now. We stand by the argument that we advance in the book, which is that we're not on the brink of victory and no one's arguing that. Um, overall, as a society, I wouldn't say that we're in great shape. I would say that the left is on better footing than it has been probably since, or at least in the United States, probably since it was, you know, torn to pieces by McCarthyism and since the work, working class institutions like unions were um, you know, ground into a pulp by the advance of neoliberalism in the late 20th century. That's the argument that we're making, not, not that we're um, about to seize the means of production, but that we actually have a fighting chance to rebuild a, a left that can win. And the purpose of the book is, is simply to collate some of the best ideas that we've come across for how the post-Sanders left should operate and to give some real world examples for how it's already doing so to sort of make it seem more more real and more possible and not just theoretical. Those are Megan Day and Micah Utrecht, authors of Bigger Than Bernie, just on paperback from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Kyoto by Phoebe Bridgers. Now an analysis of why the retail, wholesale, and department store union just lost its fight against Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama, from Jane McAlevey, the organizer and writer who's a frequent guest in this show. Jane's article on the loss on the Nation magazine's website has annoyed the union and some of its loyal fans, but sadly, everything she says is true. Jane McAlevey has spent years organizing workers and writing about how to do it right. Her latest book is A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy, published last year by Echo Press. Apologies from my side of the audio. This was the first in-person interview I've done in over a year, and something wasn't right with my mic. Jane McAlevey. Let's uh, straighten some things out here for some civilians who might not understand the arcana of labor law. Car check versus NLRB elections. What are the alternatives? What are the uh, Advantages, disadvantages, uh, any other routes available? Is that, that, is that it? And a strike for recognition. So let me explain the recognition process. If you want to be certified legally as a union, 
you're going to wind up having to get certified by the National Labor Relations Board. There are several options for how workers can form unions and get to certification under the National Labor Relations Board. The one that's most common is petitioning for an election. That's what we just saw in Alabama. The other options are that you either demand recognition by having all the workers walk out and go on strike or 90% of them walk off the job and it's called a strike for recognition. So literally the workers walk out and they say to the employer, we're not walking back in until you sign the certification because a majority of us have signed cards, certify the election, sign that you recognize a majority and we'll go to the National Relations Board and get certified. That's super rare these days, but the union act come out of and was trained by was actually pretty good at doing strikes for recognition. So it's a it's probably the most extreme and direct method. Like you walk out, you get the union. And that's still an option available to workers today. But it implies that you have to have really super serious majorities ready to take that kind of action, right? There's a sort of middle option, what's typically called a card check and neutrality campaign. And that's the more common one for people who are trying to avoid the election process because the election process opens you up to these incredibly vicious campaigns that we just saw in Alabama. So the middle option, which is card check, means that you're generally getting a majority of workers to sign a union card and then you are working simultaneously in what's called a comprehensive campaign, what some people call a combination of an air war together with a ground war. So you have to get a majority of the workers, but along the way, you're, you're trying to pummel the corporation into acquiescing to a card check campaign and or to a neutrality agreement for an election. There's no simple way to talk about labor law, but that's the, the most simple breakdown is, first of all, it's all going to have to go to the National Labor Relations Board to get certified. That's a legal word. Like the election in Alabama is not yet certified because there are objections to it right now. What we have is the vote tally and we know what the vote outcome was and that won't change, but it's not actually been certified yet. So there are serious ways that you can work with workers, starting with explaining the options to them. One is, hey, you know, at Amazon, could you get 100% of the workers to walk off the job and just say, we demand recognition? And were they going to fire everyone on, you know, prime day? That'd be kind of tricky. So it'd be really interesting. But it'd be really, really hard to get 100% of the workers to walk out or even 90%. But it's been done. That's option one, strike for recognition. Option two, card check campaign. But that involves a pressure campaign that comes from all different angles. And they did this in Smithfield on the third campaign to win. You do a, what's called an air war and a ground war. Workers have to sign a majority of the authorization cards. And you have to back the employer into agreeing to recognize the union through what's called the card count. The other option, which is the one that people may or may not know the most about now, is the election process. And the rules there say that as long as 30% of the workers have signed an authorization calling for a union election, you can then go to the National Labor Relations Board, which is what happened in Alabama, and petition to hold an election. You must show what's called a showing of interest. That's 30% um, of workers or more. Now, this is where the interesting thing comes in. When I was trained to be an organizer, I was trained, you file for your election with 75% of workers. Never 30, not 40. What good organizers or organizers who are trained in the skill of fighting SOBs, union busters, what we know forever is that you file with no less than 75% because you understand the employer is going to shave at least 20%, if not 25% of the vote. So if you can't start with that high number, knowing what the loss is when the union busting campaign starts, you pretty much don't have a path to victory. That's what an experienced organizer believes. You don't have a path to victory against a union buster. If you file with, you know, at least for God's sakes, a majority, that didn't happen in Alabama. They filed apparently with 34%. One of the confusions was 30% of what? Amazon went on a hiring spree. Apparently the union was not aware of just how many people worked at this facility. Uh, you've been criticized for getting that allegedly wrong. So what's the story there? How many workers and what did or didn't they know? What I understand and was told by the union spokesperson who I interviewed is that they went public with the campaign on the 20th of October. They had achieved at least a showing of interest. So they, they were very confident they had 30% or more, and they petitioned for an election. 
And the petition, you have to write the workers you're petitioning for. What's the unit size when you're the union? This is all very Byzantine legal stuff, like super complicated. You got to file a petition to hold the election. You fill in information. We're filing on 1,500 workers in the following bargaining unit. We have 30% or greater of a showing of interest. You, You file that form, you know, form number blah, blah with the agency. And then that triggers the process. So the National Labor Relations Board, from what I'm told, from the spokesperson, went to Amazon and said, hey, there's a petition filed for an election. Let's start talking election. That would be in mid-November. Very quickly, Amazon had Morgan Lewis, one of the infamous union busting law firms. Morgan Lewis was on the case. And Morgan Lewis, uh, apparently, and Amazon responded by saying, well, this is crazy because the petition says 1,500 workers, but there's 5,800 workers. So that's mid-November. Then the union had to make a choice. Could they actually get to at least 30% of the higher number. When I spoke to the union spokesperson and I said, what percent of cards did you have when you went into the hearing on the 20th of December? So the 20th of December, the hearing was set for the 20th of December. And when Amazon had said to the labor board, there's way more workers, Amazon contends there's 5,800 workers. So the union then had to figure out, could they get the higher number? And if you read a number of the interviews with a number of the organizers in the campaign, there's plenty of them all through the campaign. They were talking about how hard it was to run out and get a whole bunch more union authorization cards as fast as they had to, but they did it. So the hearing was set for the 20th of December. So when the 20th of December came, that's the National Labor Relations Board hearing where you go in to negotiate the rules for the election, what time it will be, is it a mail ballot or in-person voting, how many days of voting. You know, it's a very serious legal formal process about an election. I asked the union, how many membership cards did they have? How many authorization cards did they have? Going into the hearing on December 20th, they refused to tell me. That's not unusual, by the way. I don't blame them for not telling me. On the other hand, the New York Times said in December that they had 2,000 cards. So I asked the union spokesperson in my interview with her, okay, I appreciate that you don't want to tell me what percent you filed with, but the New York Times said that you had 2,000 cards. So is that accurate? She said, yes. 2,000 cards is what percent of 5,800 workers? 34%. No path to victory at that point. No path to victory. You don't go up from when you file, you go down. What people like me and senior organizers who have won hard campaigns do at a moment like that is two days before or the day before that meeting, you call a big meeting of the worker committee and you have a hard conversation with the workers. And you say, brothers and sisters, or whatever you say these days, fellow people. Comrades. Um, yeah, comrades. No, you say, you know, you have to have a hard conversation with, a, with the committee. And they're often really hard conversations. And you basically say to them, we don't have a path to victory based on having 34% of authorization cards. There is no path to victory. Even if we had 50%, I'd be having the conversation with the worker committee that said, this is a really hard conversation to have. We need to withdraw the petition. What the union did that was interesting was... They did have that period, basically a month across Thanksgiving, to try and figure out what percentage they could get. If you took the approach of saying to the workers, which is what organizers do in hard campaigns, you're, you're, you're brutally honest with the workers at every step. You can't sugarcoat this. You know what I mean? You got to say, you got to be willing to take some serious blows in this campaign because this is an A-level boss fight. You have to be honest with workers in hard campaigns. So either they weren't honest with the workers about what was going to happen in the campaign or they actually didn't know. And they went forward on a strategy that I didn't, I I knew from January was a path to a defeat. I'm speaking with the organizer and writer Jane McAlevey. Okay, now the dues question. Once the fight got going, Amazon made a big deal. They created a website, which looked really quite crude, I guess deliberately so, of how much you'd have to pay the union in dues and why waste all that money because Amazon's a nice employer now. Even some union people were saying, hey, it's a right to work state. You won't have to pay dues if you don't want to. What's wrong with that approach? Two things about this. One is, I have been told by people on the campaign, allegedly they didn't actually run that message. But the the truth is... they said it in interviews. Exactly. Oh, no, I was going to say, look, the truth is, the problem is, the National Union president, in like 15 interviews, repeated that message all over the country, on NPR, to the Washington Post. I mean, there's just a series of places where he says out loud... We keep telling the workers, of course, Amazon's lying because you don't even have to pay dues in a right to work state. You don't even have to pay dues. That was another indication that the campaign didn't have a path to victory because it's a cardinal 
mistake. And so what you say instead is a whole lot of things. First of all, if you're running a hard campaign, you've done a ton of inoculation, you've said to the workers, here's the 10 things the employer is going to do to you. Here's the 10 things they're going to say. Here's the order they're going to say them in. That's how predictable an A-level boss fight is. We know the order that there's they're like going to say them. There's a textbook for this. Yes, there's right? a textbook, including ones I've written, by the way. So yeah, there's a textbook. When I was taught to be an organizer, you're taught in a hard boss fight, there's like four phases to the boss campaign. And in each phase, there's a series of steps that the boss takes. It starts with, oh my God, we had no idea you were upset. We're your best friends. We're going to hold some meetings and fix things. You want a fan turned on? Awesome. Let's turn the fan on. Let's get some AC go. You know what I mean? Like, So the first phase of the boss fight is, we didn't have any idea you guys were upset and we're one big family. So let's just work this all out. Second phase is, you know, as soon as people aren't moving on that message, they move on to phase two. You know, then they move to doubt. They start to sow doubt. You start to raise a million questions about the union and what it does with its money. That's the doubt phase. Then you move to flat out terror and intimidation. (laughs) You move off that and you start going to like vicious intimidation. In the end, you actually fire someone. So what's interesting is that no one was fired. In the end, that's probably because of the national attention that was focused on it. And it would look bad to fire them. And plus, the boss probably knew at that point they didn't need to fire anyone because the campaign was not going to be a winner. This is really important, actually, how we do a dues discussion. First, you have to do the inoculation. You cannot not say in phase two when doubt starts, they're going to start to run a rap about dues. They're going to put flyers up in the bathrooms that say this is how much you're going to spend on dues. They're going to start sending you emails. They're going to run captive audience meetings with you that say, do you know what the union does with its dues? So if you, this is totally predictable. So we do what's called inoculation. It's very important part of the process. If you have not from every opening conversation, the first conversation with every worker, you inoculate about the phases of the boss campaign and what's coming. So that when the dues thing hits, the workers go, oh, yeah, how'd the union know that they were going to say that to us? Oh, yeah, we knew that was coming. Like, you have a very different reaction because you've taken on the dues discussion in what we call the inoculation phase. So you've inoculated first. Then if it continues to come up, okay, that's fine. You've done inoculation. But then the boss has like got a million flyers running about dues and it says all sorts of crazy stuff on it. So then you moved in the conversation. You know, I like to say to workers, why do you think the employer is suddenly concerned about how you spend your money? That's one question I like to ask. Why do you think all of a sudden Amazon's managers are so concerned about the $500 that you're going to pay? And then you move into a very important discussion, which never, ever involves you won't have to pay dues to the union. You say, the truth is, You want to build the kind of powerful workers organization inside this facility that you're going to need to go up against them in the first contract campaign, you're damn right you're going to have to pay dues. It takes real resources to go after a really important employer. So dues are essential because you've explained to them, because you're being honest and transparent, what it takes to form the kind of union that's going to win the kind of changes that the workers want. And that starts with paying dues. The union seemed to um, be running a PR campaign. They had celebrity endorsers and such. Is that helpful? Not to the workers in the campaign. I mean, it's generally actually a huge distraction. If you're an organizer and there's a ton of media attention coming, you know, you're generally getting hugely distracted by a request to talk to a worker or can I talk to a worker? So it certainly doesn't help win the campaign. What does a worker in Alabama think about a bunch of outside Hollywood liberal types and Democrats saying they should have a union? There's nothing really logical about introducing like northern foreigners in a campaign where the boss is going to be running a message about they're not even from Alabama. They're not even from here. What is important is to get very serious local endorsements in the campaign. What, like clergy and community exactly. groups? Exactly. Like, and did they do that? Well, they had the Socialist Alternative of the Democratic Socialists of America. I love those people, but... I uh, do too. Uh, so do I. But it's but Alabama. not going to cut much ice. So one of the flyers I looked at had, please come to our meeting, community meeting supporting the campaign. And it, and it you know, was a couple of socialist organizations on it. Great, but you're in Alabama trying to win a campaign. Sorry, that's not. The local community that you need are ministers. Like there was a big issue made about the faith of the workers. It was through a lot of the stories. Like if you were following the storyline, a lot of faith, they start the meeting with prayers. That's great. So if faith is important in the campaign, you need local faith leaders in the community, ministers, clergy. That's what I do in a campaign. You need to talk to the workers and say, oh, whose church do you and your family attend? You got to be charting and systematizing. Oh, which churches do you go to? Then you're also, by the way, with your research team doing a power structure analysis parallel to this to figure out which institutions in the community have power. And then you're going to marry the data between what houses of faith the workers attend and which of those houses of faith are important. 
And then you're going to get the workers themselves to go to their minister and say, we're in this campaign. It's getting kind of scary in there. It'd be really great if you could write a letter to me and all of us saying you stand with the workers and so does God. I've got about 25 of those letters from previous campaigns I'm happy to share with you. That's what you do in a hard campaign. Now, I see some pundits drawing the conclusion that even though it was a loss, it was a victory in the long term. What do you say to that? Or- There's at least one person I really respect who thinks that. So that made me think about twice about it. You know what I mean? Most people who are saying that, I think that's, you know, it's just spin, right? Like this was really, I mean, how many times have we heard that in my life? Way too many times. You know what I mean? People just constantly spinning defeat as a victory. But to me, a victory is a victory. So what one person, the one person I respect who said that to me, well, you know, it's good that it got a lot of attention because there's a lot of phone calls coming in from Amazon workers. And the truth is, There's already a lot of workers in Amazon having conversations. That's what the EWOC committee is. That's what the Essential Workers Organizing Committee is. That's what Amazonians Unite. You know, there's there's groups of Amazon workers out there who are trying to figure out how to form unions long before this news story broke as like with a, you know, countdown ticker on it at the New York Times. By the way, there's a big strike going on right now. We're in week six of it by a bunch of valiant nurses fighting for their lives who saved everyone's lives in Massachusetts. I would like to have the New York Times have a countdown clock for how many more days the workers who just saved half the million, you know, whatever families in Massachusetts will have to stay on strike to have their boss give them what they deserve coming out of a and in the middle of a pandemic. You know what I mean? Like in terms of where we're focusing our attention. You've mentioned the Smithfield uh, pork processing plant workers took, what, three attempts, uh, 15, 16 years? Yeah, which was crazy. And the argument that I make, that was part of my dissertation, the argument I make in there, the narrative that developed on Smithfield, which is similar to now, is it's impossible to win an election. You know, it's just it's not it's impossible to win a big campaign in the South. That was a that was the driving narrative because of the 16 years. So a lot of the coverage about Smithfield was about that. It's really hard to win union campaigns in the South. And it's going to take you 16 years and however, however many millions of dollars unions spent on legal fees and stuff. And what I took away from the campaign and what I argued in my dissertation was of course, labor law is broken. If I haven't said it 20 times under the sun, of course, the bo- you know, labor law is, there's no functioning labor law in this country. That, of course. But what I took away instead when I studied the three campaigns, because I went into the records on all three of the campaigns, was that they probably could have won the first campaign if they had deployed good organizing skills. And they didn't. They ran a totally shot operation, which I analyze in my book. And they got beat. Interestingly, they didn't get beat all that badly. They got beat, though, you know, beat enough badly in the first election. And then the union did the same thing that the union here is going to do. They filed objections to the election and they, you know, had lots of what's called unfair practice charges. And I said in the end of my nation article, I believe what will happen next is the union will file objections to the election. And I believe that they will get a rerun of the election at some point. It's going to take a while because they're dealing with an effective union buster who's going to slow the whole process down, stall it. They're going to contest. They're going to say they're busy for three months and can't show up for the first. You know, I mean, the bosses know how to delay the process. So there must be pretty high turnover in the workforce, too. Is it going to make that much more complicated? It can play both ways. I mean, at Smithfield, the analogies to Smithfield are very important. Smithfield had 100 percent turnover every year, too. What Amazon just did was the same thing the employee, what Smithfield did in the first and second campaign. But the first one is what mattered. They didn't just go in to defeat the union. They went in to do a beatdown to make those workers feel so much pain for daring to call for a union election that they should never try it again. Then when the rerun election came, the boss was like, quadruply committed. I mean, this was like an employer like Amazon. So in the second election, they lost by two or three times worse. It was a total disaster in the rerun election because the living memory of people was we can't beat the employer and it's going to be a terror campaign. When I interviewed people for the who went through the the few people who had gone through both rounds of the elections and the plant that you know was like just horrific, you know, the behavior of the employer. And so they were terrorized. The third election for which they get what's called one of those neutrality agreements. Essentially they get what's called an election procedure agreement, an EPA, that constrained the employer so that the employer couldn't campaign against the workers. When they got that and they built majorities among the workers, they're able to win the election. But that's what it took. They had to do serious in-plant organizing. A couple of the workers who had been fired in the second campaign finally won justice out of the legal process. 
And a bunch of them took their jobs back and went back in. What usually happens when workers are fired in a campaign is they're so, it was so terrorizing. Not only that, are their lives ruined. When a really good worker who's done nothing but perfect work for 10, 20 years gets fired because of a union drive, it's devastating. So that didn't happen in this campaign. But in Smithfield, they'd fired some workers. They finally get their job back. And what happened was that several of those workers instead of taking the deal, so the, the boss offers you a ton of money, they'll offer you all the lost wages, which was a lot of money in Smithfield because many years had gone by between, before the third election. They offer you to pay you all the wages plus some. They kind of deal with you to go away. What happened in Smithfield was a few of the workers said, no, we don't want your money. We want our position back because the, there was a court order that said you have to offer their jobs back. And if they don't offer the jobs back, you have to pay all the lost wages. That's under the law that you have to pay the lost wages if you're found that you're illegally terminated. Um, I mean, I've been involved in campaigns where we got workers $180,000, $230,000, $250,000 settlements because they were nurses who made a lot of money when they were fired in the campaign, right? So, and the key is, no, we're not taking the money. Like, we're going to go back in and keep organizing. So at Smithfield, some of the fired workers said, we're going back in. And because he went in with legal protections behind him, like he went in and said, I dare, I dare you. I double dare you. And he just started to run the campaign all over again. Uh, you know, the rest is history. It's an amazing story, really. But, and, and they changed strategies. They hired a really brilliant campaign team. Gene Bruskin became the leader of the campaign. He got sent down to run the campaign. And Gene Bruskin understood you had to run a serious operation inside the plant. Like workers had to be willing to stand up and fight the employer and show that they were willing to stand up to the employer every day, on the floors, on the shifts, every shift. And you have to run a campaign to try and neuter the employer's blows, right? Which is what they were doing. They were running a hard, aggressive campaign. Uh, They had local ministers with support of the workers, which don't do this in the Amazon. Don't do this unless the workers tell you to. I'm just saying that to the the ether out there, to the listeners. With the support of the workers, a boycott was organized by local ministers of every single store. and, And they targeted the stores that carried the biggest number of Smithfield products. And they did that going into the holidays when thousands of hams get sold. They went after Oprah Winfrey, who had Paula Deen, that fa- was like famous chef. They did this amazing action where Paula Deen was going on Oprah, and Paula Deen was a Smith was the Smithfield sponsor, ambassador, product placer for all of her cooking shows. Very big cooking show, and they got to Oprah Winfrey and said, "You need to call her out on this, or cancel her, or yada yada yada." And it cost them thousands and thousands of hams, which the employer calculated and then fired a RICO suit against the union. I mean, this stuff is war, okay? And it was the result of the RICO suit. If you're going up against a hard boss, you got to be ready for a really hard fight. So I'm just saying in the first round of Smithfield, they actually, from my analysis, if they had run a good campaign, probably would have, probably would have won. Second round, they lost. That was the labor organizer and writer Jane McAlevey. You can find her article on the Bessemer fight on the Nation magazine's website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Paralyzed, the gang of four song performed by Warpaint from a forthcoming tribute to the band and its guitarist, Andy Gill, who died in February 2020. Till next week, bye. Paradise.